Hey everyone, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Our goal at Renaissance is to expose the heart of our city to the truth and love of Jesus. And if you want to be a part of that, then follow us on social media by searching Renaissance Decatur, or you can connect with us at renaissancedecatur.org. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's get started. Good morning. Not who you expected, correct? Well, my name is Todd, and I am honored to be here this morning. Uh, Several weeks ago, Jeff looked at his calendar, and he said, dude, I'm going to be seven or eight weeks preaching week after week. Could you maybe help me out? And I said I would be honored and thrilled to do so. Um, If you've never met again, my name, if we've never met again, my name is Todd. Uh, I preached here several times before, and uh, uh, even before that, I spent about 27 years in full-time ministry preaching most of those years, week after week after week after week, so I understand uh, the rigor that preaching week after week after week can be, and it is my honor to give Jeff a break and uh, really pick up exactly where uh, we left off last week in Corinthians to just kind of keep this series going and uh, uh, maybe put a little, my personal little twist on things for this morning. So as I said, we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians, but I don't want you to turn there yet. I will give you the page number and... um, the chapter where we're in this morning in just a little bit. But first, I just want you to kind of listen and as we do a little bit of review and maybe share some things that maybe you didn't know about this. Now, first of all, we are in 1 Corinthians, and who is writing this? A guy by the name of Paul is writing this. He's writing this to a group of Jesus followers in a little town, well, not so little, in a town in Greece called Corinth. In that group or that church or what would have been known in those days as an ecclesia, and I'll explain that more in a minute, there would have been anywhere from probably 40 to maybe 150 Jesus followers, believers, meeting in a home or maybe a rented facility of some sort. The guy that's writing this letter, Paul, would have been in Corinth and spent about 18 months there. He actually was kind of the church planter of the church in Corinth and then has gone on to other things where he now finds himself in the town of Ephesus, which is just across the Aegean Sea from Corinth. And what is he writing? Is Did Paul sit down and say, I'm going to write a book so they can read this 2,000 years later? I don't think so. He's writing a letter. He's writing a letter to these Jesus followers in Corinth because he wants them to know some things. Now, how many letters did Paul write to the Corinthian church? Anyone? Most would say two. But actually... Experts, theologians, whatever you want to call them, would say probably there were four, okay? Now, some would say there's two schools of thought on this. Some would say that two of the letters are lost. We've never seen them before. Others would say, oh no, 
they actually, the four letters are contained within the two that we already have. Let me show you what I mean. If you look up here, first letter, some would say, is actually contained in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through 21, or 7 through 1. Letter 2 is actually what we have of 1 Corinthians. The third letter would have been 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, and then the fourth, 2 Corinthians 1 through 9. Suggestion, get your phone out, take a picture of that. Go home today and read sometime, read in that order. I'm telling you, the letters of the Corinthians will make a whole lot more sense if you read them in that order than in the order that we have. So, we are opening up 1 Corinthians in our Bible, which is actually which letter? The second letter, okay? So there's already been one has been sent. They actually are send, have sent a letter back to him, and he's responding with this second letter. So what we're reading is this second letter. We're in about the year 55 AD. So Jesus would have died, risen from the dead, 20-some years earlier. And Paul is writing in reference to two things. Number one, he's writing in reference to an eyewitness account of three guys who had recently been to this church or this ecclesia in Corinth, and he has reported to Paul, they have reported to Paul some things that are going on that maybe need to be addressed. And secondly, Paul is writing this letter to, in response to, well, their letter that they wrote. And they said, Paul, what about this? What about this? What about this? Now, something else you need to understand is this word ekklesia. That's the Greek word that was word, used for the word for church. And the first thing you have to understand is, is that the word church or ecclesia never described a building. It described a group of people. And the word ecclesia actually comes from two words put together into one. The first part of the word is ek. E-K, which in Greek always meant out of. And then the second word, the root of that was the word kaleo, which means to call out. So you put those two words together into ekklesia, and what you have is the ones called out, or the called out ones. And it's to these called out ones that Paul writes this letter who are meeting in the home of a young lady named Chloe and so that he can address what he's heard from these three guys and address the issues that they have said in their letter. Because this ecclesia has done something, they've succeeded in doing something that was absolutely amazing. They had succeeded in doing something that maybe had never ever been done before maybe even in the history of the world. What they had done is that they had broken down all of the barriers that society had put in their way because of how they saw themselves in the shadow of the cross. Everyone sinners in front of a holy God. 
everyone forgiven by that same Jesus because of what he did. All of the barriers that once were there were coming down. The barrier between slave and free, Jew and Gentile, Roman, Greek, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, all worshiping together in the same place. Prostitutes and politicians, felons and farmers, all together worshiping Jesus in the same room. Divorced, married, singles, haves, have-nots, long-haired, gray-haired, no-haired, all together worshiping Jesus in the same room. Because all of the ways that the world had divided them were gone when they saw themselves in light of Jesus. So they had that amazing thing going for them. But also you need to understand this, that in those days in first century Greek and first century Greece, that in order to be a part of one of these ecclesias was not just a Sunday morning decision. It was not a decision of where I'm going to go and who I'm going to be with for an hour and a half a week. It was an all-out, life-changing, life-risking, risky thing to do. Because see, early on, Rome just kind of left the Jews. They just kind of left them alone, let them worship however they wanted to and did what, and just... You be over there, you're fine. But after Jesus, and after there was talk of this Savior who had died on a cross and then done what? Risen from the dead. Now, all of a sudden, there's a new phrase being heard across the Roman Empire. Because in those days in the Roman Empire, there was a three-word phrase that everyone was required to say, and it said, Caesar is Lord. But these pesky Jesus followers, these ones who were claiming allegiance to Jesus, they had another phrase, three words. You know what they were? Jesus is Lord. And you know what? Saying those three words could get you killed. They could get you crucified. They could get you stuck at the end of a Roman sword. So as I said, the decision to meet in an ecclesia, whether you were in Ephesus or Rome or Corinth, was not just a Sunday morning decision. It was a life-changing, threatening decision that you made every week. So in short, if you were a part of this ecclesia in Corinth, you know what? You needed each other. You weren't in this by yourself. You needed each other. You needed one another to support each other and to say, you're my brother, you're my sister. And who's Lord? Not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. So to this ecclesia that is meeting in the house of Chloe, tucked somewhere in a suburban area of Corinth, Paul writes these words that we're going to look at today. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to begin at the end. 
We're going to read the last few words that he says, and then we're going to back up and come through them a little bit of a time. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles, if you have a Bible there. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can pull one out from underneath the seat and turn to page 959. If you don't want to bother with that, you can watch the screen up here or open your Bible app and follow there. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to start at verse 33. These are the last two words or verses that he says, and we're going to start there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33. Paul says these words. So then, my brothers, kind of, in other words, now that I've said all this, here's the bottom line. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give you directions when I come. So Paul's been there, he's coming back, but in the meantime, he's like, get this stuff together. Now, I'm going to keep coming back to verses 33 and 34, so we continually get the context of what Paul is saying because sometimes it can get rather complicated. But before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. As we gather in a room, a group of Jesus followers, we thank you that we don't have to worry of the threat of a knock on the door and a Roman soldier invading us and carrying us away to jail. We thank you for that freedom. But Lord, never, ever let us take that freedom for granted. And Lord, I just pray that your words will speak to each of us today and that a meal, some eating together that had some impact for them will perhaps have impact for us today. And not just today, but in the future. And that we might go from this place knowing how loved we truly are and how forgiven we truly are because of something you gave us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to do this again. Chapter 11, verse 33 and 34. I'm going to read it again. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. As I said, I'm going to keep coming back to that because this section can get kind of complicated after a while. And I try to see myself as not an educator, but a communicator. Do you know the difference? An educator takes something simple and makes it complicated. A communicator takes something complicated and makes it simple. That's what I hope to do today, of something that can get rather complicated. So we're going to back up to verse 17, where Jeff left off last week, is where we start. He says this, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, but in the following instructions... I do not commend you 
Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What Paul starts out to say is he's addressing this meal, this meal that they are having together. It was actually called in those days an eranos or a love feast. These Jesus followers would gather in Chloe's home or a rented facility somewhere and they would have a meal together. And an eranos in those days would be kind of the first century version of a potluck, okay? You would bring what you would bring. You would bring what you had. You know, if your, letter, your name started with A through M, you would bring a meat. And if it was N through Z, you would bring a salad. And we would bring them all together. We would pool our resources, and then we would have this great meal. With who? With rich and poor eating together. Slave and free, Jew, Gentile, Greek, Roman, would bring what they could, they could, and everyone would eat together from what was provided. And in the middle of all of that, at some point, someone would stand up and they would break bread. And someone would say, this is Jesus' body. And someone would take a cup and hold it up and say, this is Jesus' blood. And they would remember. Remember what? Remember the enormous price that Jesus offered, that Jesus gave his body, his blood for them, for me, for you. That we might know and experience what real love is all about. That we might know and actually experience the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. But there's a problem. There's a problem here. And that's what Paul is addressing. Look at verse 21. He says, For in eating, each goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? See, the haves who had would do what? They'd bring a lot. And then they'd do what? They'd eat it. And it would all be gone. And by the time those who had very little got there, it would all be gone. Those who had would bring wine. And while they're there, they would do what? They would drink it. And all those that had very little, they got nothing, if anything. And right here in verse 21, Paul says, that ain't right. 
because you're defeating the very purpose that this meal was created to celebrate. If you need a snack, have a snack at home before you come so that when you come here, there's enough for everybody. Look at the last verse again where we started. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. And then Paul does something that most miss. Look at verse 23. Probably the most familiar words you will see in this section. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Question. Why does Paul include these words in this letter? These would have been well-known words, right? I mean, Matthew and Mark and Luke, you know, they would have already written these words, and why would Paul record them again? Well, here's the thing, not so fast. Because actually, when Paul wrote this letter to the Jesus followers in Corinth, it's about, what did we say? It was, he wrote it at about 53 AD. Matthew, Mark, and Luke hadn't even been written yet. So do you understand the ramifications of what Jesus is, re, or what Paul is recording here? He is writing down for the very first time the actual words that Jesus said when he offered this meal the very first time. These words would have spread like wildfire across the Roman Empire. We have it. It's written down of what Jesus said. And in the middle of this kind of second letter to these followers of Jesus in Corinth are these epic words of Jesus to remind them what? Of what this meal was all about and what Jesus intended from the very beginning. Now, we'll come back to that in just a minute. But then Jesus, or Paul says something that gets a little wonky. Debated, argued over for centuries. Look at verse 27. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along 
with the world. What? I don't know if you noticed, but there's some pretty strong language in there. He uses words like guilt and guilty and judgment and unworthy and condemned. And some versions of this even use the word damnation in there. If you don't get anything, I want you to get this from this section. Does it tell you how strongly Paul feels about this? He wants them to get this. He wants them to understand how important this is. In other words, he's saying, don't treat this meal lightly. It cost Jesus his life. Don't treat it lightly. But I think if you understand kind of where the key of this, I think it's in verse 29. Verse 29 says this, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let me read that again. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does Paul mean by the body? Now, some would say, well, he's talking about his body. But others would say, maybe there's something else that he's talking about. And I tend to agree with this, because look what Paul said just the next chapter later. He said this to these same followers in Corinth, in Chloe's home. He said, you are what? You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. What body is Paul talking about? Is he talking about his body or is he talking about the body? And is he saying, you've got to recognize the what? The body. Recognize the unity. Recognize the oneness. Recognize what's going on in this. And in very strong language in this section, I think Paul is trying to say, you're missing the point. You're missing the point of the whole meal. You in your actions are destroying the very thing this meal was supposed to create. Do you see that? The unity, the oneness, the forgiveness, the grace that no one better, no one worse than anybody else. Look again at verse 33 again. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for what? For judgment. This is important, and he wants them to get it. But there's something else about this meal and them eating this meal together in this context of kind of this full meal that I don't want you to miss. What might be another reason that these followers of Jesus celebrate this meal 
in the context of a full meal deal. Let me give you a clue. Think of the danger that they faced as they gathered together and said, Jesus is Lord. Think of the danger they faced if they were caught gathering together and recognize and celebrate this Jesus. What might happen if a Roman soldier dropped by? As this gathering was taking place, just as they were having this meal, what might happen? happen. They could all be thrown in prison. But if it's in the context of a full meal, just, dude, come on in. We're just having some food. This whole thing might have been their kind of subversive way to, number one, celebrate their unity. Celebrate the love that they had, the fellowship that they had for each other. But also, this might have been their subversive way to do what Jesus told them to do when he said, do this in remembrance of me. And this might have been their way, their subversive way to share with everyone, haves and have-nots, whatever they had need of but also was maybe this their subversive way to do it in such a way that if anybody questioned what they were doing, they could just say, hey, dude, we're having some food. It's brilliant. What an amazing way to do it and to be these followers of Jesus in this place at this time. Sometimes I think a good quote is the best way to put something up. And here's what one theologian said about this meal. He said, Paul does not condemn the meal, the meal aspect of their gathering. Rather, he rebukes their contradiction of what the Lord's Supper signifies, the unity of the body of Christ. The way they were coming together reflected division, not unity. They were not eating together as a unit. Next screen. The giving nature of Christ was not reflected in the sharing of food with one another. Now watch this. Eating and drinking in an unworthy manner refers to the divided way in which the Corinthians were coming together. Unworthiness was about, what did it say? refers to the divided way in which the Corinthians were coming together, not together as a unit. Look at verse 33 again. We started there, we're ending there. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is, in, is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Throughout the centuries, the meaning of this meal or the meaning of the bread and the wine and the body and the blood have been debated. And maybe even some of you are here this morning and you're thinking, well, I was taught that, you know, the bread actually becomes the body of Jesus, you know, when it, they do something or 
the wine actually becomes the blood of Jesus when something happens in the service. Or maybe some of you are there and you go, well, I was taught that you eat the bread, but you receive the body. You drink the wine, but you receive the blood. And maybe others of you are sitting there going, no, I, I was, my understanding was it's just, it's a symbol. It's, 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 it's kind of symbolic. You know, the bread, there's no real body and blood there. It's just bread and wine. It's just, it's just kind of a picture. It's a symbol. And I would venture to say, based on what I've read here, and hopefully what you have too, is that if you ask the Apostle Paul which one of those he would come down on, he would say, are you kidding me? You're going to use this section to divide the church again into factions instead of seeing it for what it is, an opportunity for the body of Christ to come together in oneness, in love, in fellowship, in forgiveness, and enjoy the benefit of what Jesus died to give. Amen? Amen. Because, you know, sometimes, let me put it this way. Words aren't enough to express what needs to be expressed. Sometimes there needs to be something more than just words, something physical, a touch of some sort. Let me give you an example um, from something that happened in my life here last couple of months. Um, back in April, my wife and I, Jennifer, she's sitting right over here, we did something monumental together. Um, we ran a half marathon together, okay? Now, if you're not a runner and have no idea how far that is, a half marathon is 13.1 miles. And we ran that together. Uh, and we'd been running uh, for some time. We'd been running for several years. We'd never run that far, and we'd never run that far together. But we were challenged uh, by some people back in February that we think you could do this. Let's try it. And, and she just barely kind of said, I'll think about it, and I'm registering. So, <laughs> so April 6th, in Springfield, Illinois, we ran the presidential half marathon. And we had just a little over six weeks to prepare for that. And that's not much time to prepare for a half marathon. So what we would do is we would kind of do our normal runs throughout the week. And then on the weekend, normally Saturday, we would go on a longer run. So the first week, I think we started with a six-mile run. And then the next Saturday was an eight-mile run. Then the next week was a 10-mile run. And then the next week was a 12-mile run. Took a little time off, and then it was race day. And it was a cool April, it was April 6th, cool April morning in Springfield. We took off, did great most of the time, hit a bunch of hills. And there was a time when she wanted to, I can't do this. I can't do this. There were hills all over the place. It was crazy. But about, I don't know, three or four blocks before we actually got to the finish line, I said to her, I said, you know what, honey? I said, if we keep up at this pace, 
we could finish this race in under three hours. She's like, really? Yeah, I think we can do it. Okay, I can do it. I can do it. And we turned the corner. We saw the finish line. We crossed the finish line together. See? And before they could ever put the finisher medal around our necks, you know what we did? We hugged. Because see, at that moment, a high five wouldn't have done it. In that moment, a fist bump, handshake, wouldn't have done it. It was a hug, but it wasn't just a hug. It was an embrace. And one of the longest hugs probably we've ever had in our 22 years of marriage because there was so much that was wrapped up in that hug. It was all those miles and all that preparation and the fact that we were there at the finish line and we finished in two hours and 58 minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> and we did it how? We did it And it was a hug. In a way, I think that's exactly what Jesus had in mind when he gave us this meal. Because sometimes, great job, honey, wouldn't do it. And sometimes, I love you, I forgive you, just doesn't cut it. Let me tell you one last thing. I also have an 18-year-old daughter and uh, her name is Kaylee. Um, she's back there in the back row, and she's awesome. She is a freshman this year at uh, Richland Community College. She's doing great. She wants to be a, um, what is it? Chemical biologist, what? Biochem, Bio yes, she is, see? <laughs> While I'm telling this story, if you would get a cracker at a, Grape, grape juice. Don't eat it and don't drink it. Just hang on to it. But Kaylee, is, she is a great kid and we love her to death. But is Kaylee perfect? Uh, no. She, um, she's, she's made some mistakes from time to time. And sometimes she's made some pretty big mistakes. But um, let's say Kaylee does something and... Um, it's a big one. And she comes to us and she's like, Mom and Dad, I blew it and you're right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. And she leaves the kitchen and she goes to her room. Now, as her dad, in that moment, I have a choice. I can communicate to her my feelings this way. She's in her bedroom, doors shut, I'm in the kitchen, and I can yell to her, and I can say, Kaylee, I just want you to know that I love you and I forgive you. Now, did I communicate? Yes. Did I communicate that I love her? Yes. Did I communicate that I forgive her? Yes. But what would be better? 
how about if I get off my chair, I walk into her room, open the door, walk up to her, look her in the eye, wrap my arms around her, and say, Kaylee, I just want you to know, I love you, and I forgive you. That's how to do it. And that's what Jesus did. And that's what you hold in your hand right now. You hold a physical expression, a hug, if you will, of Jesus looking you in the eye and saying, I just want you to know that I love you and I forgive you. Let's pray together and then we'll do this together. Heavenly Father, you knew, <laughs> you knew that from time to time we would need to be reminded. You said, do this in remembrance of me, and we do. But sometimes we're the ones that need to be reminded. Reminded of the price that you paid, the death that you died, and the victory that you won for each of us with a body broken and blood poured out. Lord, we hold in our hands a physical touch from you. And together, we're going to eat it and drink it. And I just pray that we will receive exactly what it was that you offered. Love, forgiveness, and amazing grace. There's not one of us in this room that's earned this or deserved this, but you give it because you love us. We thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. That night, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to those disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Receive now the physical touch of Jesus just for you. And then he took the cup and he gave it to those disciples and he said, drink of it. All of you. All of you. For this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood given just for you. Receive now the blood of Jesus given just for you. I hope you can walk from this place this morning knowing <laughs> just how much he loves you and that today and every day you're forgiven. God bless.
Thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We're so excited to see the things that God is doing in our community. And if you're looking for a way to get involved in that, then please go to rendicator.org and make a commitment to being a part of showing the people of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them. Thank you.